All right, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and turn with me, Mark chapter 3. That's where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Mark chapter 3. Excited this morning, we get to continue this journey through Mark's gospel. I don't know about you, but it's been encouraging already the conversations that we've been able to have. I've been able to have with others who are working through the Sunday school lessons, the daily readings. It's encouraging as a pastor to hear conversations among others who are um, connecting with God's Word and then with one another as a result of that. And so it's just my prayer that as we continue with this unified focus on Mark's gospel over the next couple months, that it'll continue to unite us in our purpose and our mission as God's people who exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. So we're going to get to Mark chapter 3 in a moment. Verse 20 is where we're going to start. I promise we'll get there, but quick recap along the way before we get there. Started two weeks ago with the call to discipleship. We see, see Jesus in chapter 1 calling people to follow him, and immediately his disciples would just get up and leave and follow him from whatever they were doing because we saw there Jesus is worthy of being followed. Last week, we saw in the story of Jesus healing the paralytic, the paralyzed man, that Jesus doesn't just have the power to heal physically, but he also has the power to forgive sins. And Jesus' miracles that he's performing in the Gospels, they aren't just about him showing off his great power, they're about him showing off his great power to confirm the claims that he is making. Because when he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, it was the same as him saying, I am God. The audience knew that, Jesus knew that, and that's why the next thing he told the man was to get up and walk so that it would confirm and affirm what he had just said, the much bolder statement where he told this man his sins were forgiven. So both of those stories, they pointed us to the authority of Jesus and the power of Jesus in different ways, the authority to call disciples, to call us to follow him with our lives, and the authority he has to forgive our sins. And this week continues that same theme as we see Jesus' power and his authority as he calls a new family to himself. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the whoever family, starting Mark chapter 3 and verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. His mother And his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 
Father, this morning we ask that you would take these words that we've read, hear your words, Lord, and accomplish through them this morning exactly what you intend to in our hearts and in our lives, that we would hear, that we would understand, and then that we would obey, Lord, that we would take what we've heard this morning and do it, apply it in our lives, Lord, so that we would be a people who do your will, a family that exists and is marked by doing what you've called us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, in 1952, C.S. Lewis published his famous work, Mere Christianity. And in it, he said these words about Jesus. You may have heard this before. He wrote, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis wasn't the first to use that argument to defend his faith. We see others doing it throughout the history of the church. Is Jesus a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he actually the Lord of the universe? That's the confrontation that's happening in our hearts and in our minds when we read the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And we see that coming to life in our text this morning. Jesus, he's been announcing the kingdom of God, and now we see him forming a new family for himself. But along the way, we find out that not everyone will be a part of that family. Unfortunately, some reject the claims that Jesus is making about himself and on their lives. It was true then, and unfortunately, it is still true today. So when we talked earlier about Mark, we saw in the video Mark working with Peter and recording Peter's eyewitness testimony of those events. One of the things that we're not saying with that is that Mark just kept a journal or something of the Peter's stories that he was telling about Jesus, and then that turned into the gospel. No, Mark sat down and wrote this gospel on purpose, composed it to communicate that Jesus is the Messiah that he's the Savior of the world, that he's the Son of God, and he does it with this intensity and this urgency that is breathtaking sometimes as we read through it together. As we go from story to story in the Gospel of Mark, it's these very quick snippets, this very quick action, this quick pace, as he says, and then, and then, immediately, again, and again, and then, and then, and then, and he just goes on and on. He moves the story forward at a staggering pace because there's a sense of urgency to the story that he is telling, to the message that he's trying to communicate in our passage here this morning. We see the care with which Mark put together this gospel. So we open up in verses 20 and 21. We see Jesus' family looking for him. And as we come back at the end of the passage, we see his family looking for him again. We see it coming full circle. So we see Jesus declaring a new family for himself in this bracketed structure there. It's something we see in Scripture a lot where the authors are making it clear to us that all the stuff that's there in the middle is connected to what's on either side in the two brackets at either end of the text. And so as you read through the gospel on your own in the weeks ahead, it should be something that you could look for, these brackets where Mark is showing us these things fit together. And it should be easy to remember brackets since it's Selection Sunday. 
probably not our last basketball reference this morning, although there are probably a few less than there would have been had the game gone differently yesterday. But Jesus here, he's in Capernaum, right, at this point in his ministry. Maybe he's living there, we don't really know exactly, but at any rate, Mark tells us here in this verse, verse 20, that he goes home, it says. It's probably talking about the place where he's staying there in Capernaum more so than like home, home, right? So he goes back to his, the Hampton Inn or the Airbnb where he's staying for the night, and the crowd gathers again. It says, so that they could not even eat. Just imagine that kind of crowd gathering around the place where you're staying, right? I've never had that when I was gone on vacation, this crowd gathering around outside my house, either here at home or when I'm traveling so large that I couldn't eat or couldn't even get out to go eat. That's not how my life normally looks, and it wasn't how life normally looked in the first century either, which is why Mark thinks it's notable to tell us. So Jesus here is in this house in Capernaum with this huge crowd, massive crowd gathered around, pressing in on him, and his family hears about it. And this is where we see the first way that some people will respond to Jesus and his message. I'm going to call this first way that Jesus is rejected in this passage the polite way. Because Jesus' family, they hear that there's this big crowd gathered around, and they respond like many of us would if it was our brother or son or nephew or grandson in this situation. They went out to get him, because Jesus is clearly, he's not thinking clearly. I mean, he's out of his mind. Let's just look at what's already been happening in Mark's gospel. He was baptized. We see a voice call out to him from heaven. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand calling these seemingly random people to follow him, and for some reason they get up and do it. He's preached throughout all of Galilee. He's healed countless people, announced that a paralyzed man's sins are forgiven, made more bold and controversial claims, called more disciples, and now he just goes home, presumably to rest. This crowd gathers. He can't even eat. He's just trying to get some rest. And at this moment, his family gathers. They say, we need to come and talk to Jesus. Clearly, he's out of his mind. I think it'd be easy for us here to read about Jesus's family responding that way and kind of pile on them. Right? How could they not have seen what was right in front of them? How could they have been so foolish? I mean, they'd been around Jesus his whole life. They knew him better than anyone. But we should check our own hearts before we start piling on Jesus's family here, because I think the truth is we're tempted to reject Jesus in the same way, this polite way of rejecting Jesus. We could call it the nice way or the southern way, right? the bless his heart way to reject Jesus. Jesus' family here, they have a little softer touch than the next group we're going to see that rejects his claims, but surely their intentions are better. Right? They are trying to protect Jesus at this point, protect him from himself, but still they're in dangerous territory. And I wonder if any of us find ourselves standing with them this morning. At this point in Jesus's ministry, right, it's hard to imagine anybody having more knowledge about who Jesus is than his family. They were there as he grew up, and yet when Jesus starts making these big claims about his power and his authority, they get concerned because they knew so much, and yet they didn't understand who Jesus was in the fullness of his power. As I think about his family's polite rejection of him here. I can't help but think how similar it sounds to the community that we live in, the Bible Belt here in Kentucky. Who has access to more information about Jesus than we do? 
How many Bibles fill our homes? Devotional guides? How many Sunday school books? How many sermons have we heard? How many opportunities do we have to hear biblical teaching on a weekly basis without any threat to our safety or to our families? We have been abundantly blessed with access to more information about Jesus than any people, at any place, at any time in history. But knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Knowing about Jesus doesn't equal us accepting his claims with faith and repentance. In fact, cultural Christianity like ours is really good at politely rejecting Jesus. That may be changing as our culture shifts a little bit, but in communities like ours, it's still a threat because you won't see or hear a ton of people in Sonora protesting every mention of God or every public prayer. Most people you talk to around here are still going to claim to be Christian, but the vast majority of them don't attend church on a regular basis. They're living good, moral lives marked by Christian values, just minus the highest Christian value of all, Jesus. They're not going to say anything negative about Jesus or about the church or about the Bible. That's still a cultural no-no in our community, but they're not going out of their way to stand up for Jesus and his teachings either, especially the ones that are most controversial. In fact, the temptation continues to grow as our culture shifts on a number of issues. We try to find ways to make the teachings of Jesus more acceptable or easier for the culture around us to hear And we respond to questions like, well, did Jesus really say that? With contemplation instead of confidence in what God's Word says. So we're trying to soften the edges. We're trying to protect the church, trying to protect Jesus, much like his family was here. They wanted to protect him, and we're going to be tempted to do the same. And as it seems that Christian influence on the culture around us is slipping away, we're going to feel that pull toward politely saying, eh, No thanks, Jesus, to certain parts of who you claim to be and what you've taught us about how to live. But the danger isn't diminished by our politeness. Whether it's those who know all there is to know about Jesus without ever personally trusting him or those who seem to make that decision only to later fall away, the final result is the same. So this morning, if you're hearing all this about Jesus, the Son of God, with the authority to forgive sins, the one who paid the penalty on the cross by dying for our sins and then rose again to give us victory over sins, then this morning the invitation is clear to you. Turn from living for yourself and turn from living in your sin. Trust Jesus to save you. We're going to have a time of response in a little bit, but the invitation is right now. We've sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. The penalty for our sin is death. But Jesus paid the penalty for us. He defeated death so that we can live forever with him in glory. We can live a full life right here, here and now, following him, obeying him, being a part of his family. And so don't sit there this morning and politely hear that truth again without it transforming your heart and your life and your eternity. Jesus, his family, they came looking for him and they said, He's out of his mind. They meant well, right? But good intentions aren't the response that is required by the gospel. A good life isn't the response that's required by the gospel. Repent 
and believe the good news. That's the call of Jesus. It's being echoed from pulpits around the world to this day. But right now, there are powers at work to convince some of you that even though you haven't ever trusted in Jesus to save you, that you live your life the right way. That you come to church, that you're living by the spirit of what Jesus taught. The only way to live by the spirit of what Jesus taught is for the spirit of God to make your sin-deadened heart alive so that you turn from sin and trust in Jesus. And so don't politely reject Jesus today. Jesus' family, spoiler alert here, but we know they didn't remain where they are in this moment. We know that they eventually understood who he was, trusted in him, followed him, and today is the day for us to do the same. Jesus' family weren't the only ones, though, that questioned him and rejected him. We saw another group coming. This time it's the scribes that came from Jerusalem, religious leaders, and it said they came down, they saw and heard what Jesus was doing and saying, and they said he's possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul, that's a name that comes from the Old Testament false god named Baal. They didn't stop there. They say he's casting out demons because he works for the prince of demons. And so if Jesus' family found the polite way to reject him, then these scribes found the blasphemous way to reject him. They weren't content to say that Jesus was just a little bit off, that he'd lost his mind. They go all the way to he is a liar. He is evil. And if you don't think that's what they're saying, then see how Jesus responds. He asks, can Satan cast out Satan? We'll see how he responds to his family here in a little bit, but this time he fires back at the accusations, takes them head on. He says, this doesn't even make sense, right? Why would Satan be working against himself? And so he gives a couple of parables to show how ridiculous this is. First of all, he says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln famously quoted that verse in his run for the U.S. Senate in 1858, failed run that was met at that point with maybe some of the same rejection that Jesus was met with here. And that verse that he quoted there, he understood the principle of it rightly. It applies the same way to us today. A nation, a kingdom, a family that's divided against itself is ultimately in danger of crumbling from within, collapsing from within. So we should hear that warning for our families, for our nation, for our church even for our own hearts. But that's not the main thing Jesus is driving at here. He tells this, he talks about this house divided against itself, not being able to stand as a way to make the bigger point he's making. His focus here right now is on responding to this charge the scribes had made against him. And he says, if Satan has risen up against, him, against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. He's coming to an end. So the idea that Jesus is working with Satan here, it's disproven by the fact that Jesus is clearly working against Satan, right? Basically, that seems kind of obvious, right? But Jesus says, I'm not working with Satan because I'm clearly working against him. And we see a second parable, verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he may plunder his house. Jesus moves on here. He's talking now about how he's ultimately going to defeat Satan this picture of someone 
trying to break into the house of a rich and powerful man. Type of person that has the means to defend themselves and everything that they own to defend what is theirs. And if you're going to do that, Jesus is saying, if you're going to go and try to rob somebody like that, then you're going to need to start by neutralizing the greatest threat to you, and that is the person, the owner of the house, that would stop at nothing to defend himself and his family and his home against you. Jesus says, first of all, you're going to have to bind the strong man. That's exactly what Jesus intended to do with Satan. It's what he would do with Satan. See in Colossians chapter 1, what he's done, how he's accomplished that. Colossians 1 verse 13 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has fully and finally defeated Satan. And so the scribes reject Jesus here, though. They call him Satan, they, satanic, they call him evil. They call into question his motives. And he responds by pointing out how ridiculous all of it is. And then he tells them how dangerous what they're saying is in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Right. When Jesus starts a statement with truly, it's like he's putting the exclamation point out there before he even starts talking. Right? Everything Jesus says is true. So when he says truly, or I'm telling you the truth, then he's saying this is really, really important, so listen up. In this case, it starts out sounding good. Right? All sins will be forgiven, even the blasphemies that are uttered. And so if you're here this morning, and you're under the impression that Jesus can't forgive you or that he won't forgive something that you've done, then you don't have to take it from me. You can take it from Jesus himself. All sins will be forgiven. There's no sin so egregious that Jesus won't forgive the person who turns from their sin and trusts in him in faith. None. Say, but what about verse 29? Right, that's a good question. So, Verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Right? Jesus intends for this statement here to stand in stark contrast to what he's just said. He's just said, everything can be forgiven. Full forgiveness is available if you trust in me. So we start there. But then he says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a dangerous place to be, and we should hear his words as the solemn warning that they are. What is Jesus talking about? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We need to know so that we can avoid being in this situation. So we get a hint at it in Mark um, chapter 3 and verse 30. Mark tells us the reason Jesus said this was because the scribes were saying he has an unclean spirit. So in other words, the scribes, they were hearing Jesus teach and they were hearing seeing him perform all these mighty signs and wonders, and they were concluding that he was doing these things not by the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, but by the power of Satan. In the face of overwhelming evidence, in the face of the work of the Holy Spirit to show them the truth about who Jesus was, they were hardening their hearts and instead saying, no, God is not doing this. This is the work of Satan. They were determined 
not to see the truth, not to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. No matter what happened, they weren't going to believe it. Right? Have you ever done that with something? Like you came to believe something, you held an idea, and it didn't matter what anybody else said, you were not going to be convinced. You haven't done it, right? but you know somebody who has. We've all been around someone like that, and it's much more frustrating when it's them than it's us, when it's us, right? Despite the overwhelming evidence, they will not change their minds. And that persistent, that resistance to the work of the Holy Spirit is what Jesus is talking about here. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the one sin that is not forgivable. And so if you're sitting there in the pew this morning and you're wondering if you've committed this sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, if you're wondering if Jesus would forgive you if you turn to him in faith this, this morning, the answer is yes, he will. The answer is no, you've not committed that sin. Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit It's the Holy Spirit's job and purpose to convict you of your sin and to convince you that Jesus will save you. And so this morning, if you're sitting there and you want to turn from your sin and believe in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, then it is impossible that you're also at the same time resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your your life, like Jesus is talking about here. Because if you were, then you wouldn't be wanting to be saved. The fact that you want to believe in Jesus this morning is evidence that you are not committing this sin that Jesus is talking about. So, the blasphemous way to reject Jesus here. They call him evil. And some people still respond to Jesus in this way. Right, some of us try to sand down the rough edges of Jesus to protect him. These folks, though, they're out to destroy Jesus and to destroy faith in him. And some of the things you'll hear them say are vile and nasty. So the question for us this morning is how do we respond when we confront people like this, when we meet people like this in our lives? Well, we should be ready to defend our faith against attacks like this, shouldn't we? But we also need to have wisdom to know when and how to respond. We talked a lot last week about social media, but people probably aren't going to be persuaded to change their views about Jesus if they're very strongly held by us getting into an argument with them on Facebook. We can, though, confirm their position, at least in their minds, by responding with the same level of anger and vitriol as they have. We can confirm their position by showing that we're more concerned with influence and power than with faithfully following Jesus in love and with grace. And so social media is good for a lot of things, but it's probably not the best place to have a nuanced conversation with somebody. But when we meet people in our lives, we should be ready to have those types of conversations with them. Somewhere the other day, and one of the laws that was recently passed by our state legislature came up, and I won't tell you which one or which side of the argument I was on, but there was a lady there who said something about it, and I thought that she was 100% wrong, so I said something about it, along with an expression that said, like, what in the world is wrong with you? Right, that probably didn't help things all that much either, looking back, but so I said something, she said something. Back and forth, we went, come to find out after we went back and forth, back and forth, something changed, and some way we found out we had a lot more in common than 
we first thought. And so I say that to tell you, like, don't be so easy, easily offended that you just write people off from the very beginning. Right? Be willing to engage in conversations with people who seem to have views that are very different from yours. Actually hear them and understand them and then share your faith and your heart with them. The reality is that we don't get to be the judges of whether or not somebody has committed the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're not the ones who can say definitively what is happening in their heart. Our role is much simpler than that, just to faithfully follow Jesus and be witnesses for him. And so let's look at what, how we should do that here in these final few verses. We saw Jesus' family respond to him. They questioned his sanity. We've seen the scribes questioning his motives, calling him evil. How should we respond to Jesus? Right. Remember the brackets? Started out Jesus' family looking for him, and that's how we end as well. Verse 31, his mother, his brothers came. Standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' mother, his, his mom, his brothers, they're back here, I guess still looking for him, just like they were before, still concerned. This time no word gets to Jesus, his family's outside. But the tone of his response to his family is very different from how he responded to those scribes. Jesus doesn't respond here with anything negative. He doesn't have anything negative to say about his mom and his brothers or the judgment that is awaiting them. He doesn't disown them. He just looks around instead at those who are sitting with him in the house and says, here, these are my mother and my brothers. He looks at his disciples and he powerfully declares that in addition to announcing the kingdom of God, he's also forming a new family for himself. I've heard Tony talk about Jesus' forever family, this new family that isn't built upon physical ties, but instead on faith and forgiveness. Just think about who is there with Jesus here. You've got the disciples that he's already called to follow him, some of the people maybe that he's already healed, people once possessed by demons, people on the fringes of society, forgotten by most, people that nobody is looking for at all. And then there's Jesus. His mother and his brothers have sought him out again, and he looks at those gathered around him, and he says, this is my family. This new family that Jesus is forming is one where the doors are wide open. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever, this whoever family, there are no barriers to entry to the family of God. There are no hurdles to clear. It's just whoever. Think of all the ways that we're divided up in our world. Race, whoever. Gender, whoever. Level of education, whoever. Wealth, whoever. Whoever does the will of God, that's the only condition. It's the only one that Jesus ever gives us, and it's the one that can only be met by faith in Jesus. He doesn't call us to earn God's salvation. We know that because we put it in the context of his larger teaching ministry, and we see from there that for Jesus, obedience is always evidence of someone's faith. 
Right? We've got this idea that you can call Jesus Savior without obeying him as your Lord sometimes until years later. I don't know where we get that, but it's not from the Gospels. Jesus is forming a new family, a whoever family, one that does God's will. Right? Whoever. Right? Where else do we hear that in the Scriptures? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. No limits. Just do the will of God. And whoever does the will of God is a part of Jesus' family. And so what is the will of God? What is God doing in this world? John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus' new family does God's will, and that starts with believing in Jesus. But believing in Jesus always leads to obeying Jesus. We see here Jesus' family coming looking for him. It was his half-brother, James, who would write um, the book of James that we have later on in the New Testament. This is just my speculation here, but I wonder if James was remembering this day when he wrote the words that he would write in James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus go hand in hand. Faith comes first, but following is not far behind. And so if we're going to live as part of Jesus' new family, the one that does God's will, then what do we need to do? Very practically. Do God's will is simple enough, but we can make it really complicated, can't we? A lot of times that comes when we're focusing on this big picture stuff, trying to plan out 10, 15, 20 years ahead for our own life or for the church, instead of just taking the next obvious step that Jesus puts right in front of us. Right? When we do that, then we wind up almost paralyzed because we're trying to make these 20-year decisions and the pressure is so intense we can't even process it and the stakes seem so high that then tensions flare and we start questioning the motives or the sanity of anybody who would dare to disagree with us. Sounds a lot like what was happening here with Jesus, right? And it happens here. It happens in our homes. And so why don't we try to simplify this a little bit when we think about what it means for us to do God's will? Later on in the Gospel of Mark, we'll get here in a few weeks, but the scribes came again to test Jesus, to try to catch him again, asking him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus would answer them in Mark 12, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Know God, love God, and love others. For those of us who are part of God's family, This new family that Jesus is forming, this whoever family, that's the call on our lives. That's what sets us apart, makes us different. 
we do God's will. We believe him, we love him, and we love others. And so start there. Right? Loving Jesus more than anything else in our lives, serving him above everyone else in this world. That's why we're making this push for all of us to get into the word together, to get back to the basics of knowing and loving and serving Jesus together as one family. And then let's take care of our neighbor like we do ourselves. That one may seem harder at times. I don't have time to preach to you the whole sermon about who our neighbor is, right? but I'll tell you this, it's not just the people that we like or the people just like us. In fact, Jesus tells us in Luke 10, that's not even the right question to ask, who is my neighbor? The better question is, who can we be a neighbor to as we live our lives? And our temptation is to try to set boundaries and to build walls, but Jesus says, whoever. That's good news for sinners like us. So this morning, how are you going to respond to Jesus? He's the Son of God, the Savior of the world who died for your sins and rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He secured your hope for today and forever. How are you going to respond? Some will say, Jesus is out of his mind. It's a little too extreme that this call to discipleship is too radical. That you'll do part of what Jesus says, but you can't follow him all the way. Others will decide that Jesus is a liar, that he's evil, that he's wrongly motivated. And yet Mark's gospel shows us a very different picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is not out of his mind. He's the only one who sees this world as it actually is. He isn't evil. He's the only one who approaches every person, every situation exactly as he should. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Jesus' new family does God's will. And the invitation to that family is open to you today. No barriers. Whoever will do the will of God. You've heard who Jesus is this morning. You've heard his call to trust him and follow him. So, whoever. The invitation this morning, it's unlimited in scope, but it's also intensely personal. When Jesus says whoever, we shouldn't picture this Jesus standing above the world with the entire mass of every person who's ever lived or ever will live And over us saying, whoever does the will of God, that is my mother and brother and sister. No, Jesus here, he's sitting in the house. He's looking across the table. He's looking at you. Saying, whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. That's the invitation this morning. Will you accept Jesus' invitation to be a part of his family? Father, this morning... as we conclude our time together and as we respond together to your word, we pray that you would move in our hearts in a way that shows us clearly what your will is for our lives, Lord. As you speak to hearts this morning, to those who have never trusted in Jesus to forgive them of their sins, Lord, I pray that they would have the boldness to respond to you in faith and repentance and to come and share that with others. 
for each of us. Help us to be a people who are marked by doing your will, by loving you and by loving those around us, Lord, even those that are hard to love, especially those that are harder for us to love, Lord. We pray that as we sing this song and then as we go out to live out what you've called us to do and who you've called us to be as a part of your family, that you would be glorified and that people would see Jesus in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.